Okay, well, we're, we're jumping right in here. So without further ado, our first talk. So some of the meetings this year, there's been really uh, quite new information that will be helpful, I think, to, to all of us. And uh, in particular, the International AIDS Society meeting in Rome and the recent ICAC meeting in Chicago, there was a wealth of new data. And we've asked uh, Joel Gallant, a friend and colleague, to come and review the highlights. Joel is professor of medicine and epidemiology and the co-director of the Johns Hopkins AIDS Service, um, obviously from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. So, Joel, thanks for coming. We know you love New York, so it's good to see you. Great to be here, and um, what I'm going to do is talk to you about an uh, update on two conferences, the International AIDS Society Conference on Pathogenesis and Treatment of HIV in Rome that was held in uh, uh, July, and the ICAC conference that was held in Chicago. There we go. So we'll be skipping back, back and forth between Rome and Chicago, just like a James Bond movie and uh, covering the relevant things. Now, one of the problems with this, this talk, well, it's more of a problem for the other speakers, is that most of what was important in Rome and Chicago were uh, prevention and new drugs. And guess what? You have subsequent lectures on prevention and new drugs. So uh, we worked with the speakers to try to minimize overlap. But there'll be, there will be a little bit of overlap. Okay, so start with prevention from Rome. And I'm going to be very superficial here because Tripp is going to really cover prevention in much more detail. So you probably heard uh, the results of HPTN 052, a really a landmark study in the field of prevention, uh, and a study that gave us the best prevention uh, results we've ever seen with any intervention. This is where they took um, uh, 1,763 serodiscordant sexually active couples in countries around the world and randomized them if, if the positive partner CD4 was between 350 and 500. They were randomized to start, sorry, 350 and 550. They were randomized to start therapy immediately or to wait until the positive partner's uh, uh, CD4 was below 250. And they were looking at both uh, prevention endpoints, transmission endpoints, as well as clinical endpoints. So this was both a prevention study and a when to start study. And uh, the results were that there were 39 transmission events, four of which occurred in the immediate treatment arm, 35 in the delayed treatment arm. But if you look at linked, linked transmissions, in other words, the negative partner got the HIV from that positive partner and not from somebody outside the relationship, then it was only 27 to 1, or a 96% reduction. And in fact, the one transmission that occurred in the immediate arm took place before the positive partner's viral load had become suppressed. So if you want to be, uh, uh, if you want to go out on a small limb, you can say that um, treatment was 100% uh, effective when the viral load was suppressed. Uh, in terms of primary clinical events during follow-up, there was a 41% reduction in HIV-related clinical events in patients who were on the immediate arm of therapy. However, most of the difference, which was highly significant, was due to um, more extrapulmonary tuberculosis in the uh, delayed arm. So it, these are results that may not translate very well into our own setting, but may be important for resource-limited settings. 
Then there were some studies on PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. You'd already heard about IPREX. FEMPREP had already been announced. Um, but at this study, we heard about Partners PrEP, which was tenofovir versus uh, tenofovir FTC versus placebo in discordant couples, where the HIV-negative partners were the ones who took the, the therapy. And um, both of the PrEP studies, tenofovir and tenofovir FTC, significantly reduced HIV transmission. Um, you can see the efficacy versus placebo, 62% and 73%. They could not determine whether tenofovir FTC had any uh, significant advantages over tenofovir alone, though you may know that the tenofovir alone arm in the voice trial was recently stopped. So there's a lot of confusion around these studies, which appear to have somewhat different uh, results, and Tripp is going to sort it all out for you, right? And this study did appear to have efficacy both in men and women, which is important because uh, data on women had been kind of lacking or, or uh, equivocal up till the point of this study. And then finally, uh, TDF2, PrEP with tenofovir FTC in heterosexuals in Botswana um, with the negative partners uh, taking PrEP. Uh, nine versus 24 seroconversions in the tenofovir FTC arm compared to the placebo arm with an overall protective efficacy of 63%. So I'll leave the rest to, to trip to talk about in more detail, but this is obviously a very exciting uh, time in, our, in the history of HIV, and certainly the IAS meeting in Rome was a very uh, seminal uh, conference for really showing some good news in terms of biomedical prevention. Um, approved agents, I think I have... Uh, one, one picture from Chicago, um, Startmerk, uh, you, a study I'm sure you're familiar with that compares raltegavir versus efavirenz in ART-naive patients, 156-week uh, results. Um, and uh, this was, of course, in naive patients, a blinded study. Uh, and at 156 weeks, raltegavir remained non-inferior to efavirenz by intent to treat non-complete or equals failure analysis with good CD4 increases. I understand that at the um, European meeting that's being held in Belgrade, they just announced 190-something week data that uh, uh, suggested, in fact, uh, superiority. But we'll stick with what we've got here, uh, just showing the durability of raltegavir compared to efavirenz for naives. All right, back to Rome. New drugs and new strategies. There we go. Um, there has uh, been a study, Elvitegravir, the new uh, integrase inhibitor, compared to raltegravir in treatment experience patients. Now, these are not the kind of highly uh, treatment experienced patients we used to see in a lot of the so-called salvage studies. Uh, but these were people who had um, resistance or six months of exposure to at least two drug classes. So basically, it was somebody, somebody with some treatment experience who needed an integrase inhibitor, and they were randomized to get either raltegravir or uh, elvitegravir with a boosted PI. They all got boosted PIs. That's important because boosting is required for elvitegravir. And then they got a third agent. And um, what you saw at the end of week 48 was... Uh, uh, very comparable results, 59 versus 58% with viral loads below 50. 
Um, and you can see on the right another way of, of looking at that. The, the confidence interval obviously uh, shows non-inferiority at 48 weeks. <clears throat> in terms of resistance and adverse events, interestingly, there was numerically more virologic failure with raltegravir, but if you did fail, there was numerically more resistance with alvitegravir. Um, and uh, while there were some differences in the emergence of different mutations in the integrase gene, for the most part, uh, it looked like there was pretty complete cross-resistance between these two agents. This is something we'd anticipated from before, um, that we didn't expect that one was going to work when the other one did. Overall frequency of adverse events was pretty similar. These are well-tolerated drugs. There was a little more diarrhea with L-vitegravir and uh, a little more in terms of liver enzyme abnormalities with raltegravir. And I've listed the mutations that were seen, um, including the familiar ones at 143, 148, and 155. Now, it's worth, while we're talking about L-vitegravir, uh, I should mention uh, colbacistat. So colbacistat is the investigational booster that is, is being uh, looked at in co-formulation with L-vitegravir as well as with some protease inhibitors. It's a non-rotonavir booster, and one of the things that was noted early on with, with cobacistat was that it did cause an increase in serum creatinine and a decline in estimated GFR. It was proposed that that was not true nephrotoxicity, but that it was related to the effect on uh, creatinine transport by the renal tubules. This was a study to sort of confirm that hypothesis, and there are two different cohorts here. The, the, the nature of the cohorts isn't important. What matters is that in blue, you see the estimated GFR uh, using either the, the Carcroft-Galt equation or the MDRD equation. And um, in, um, sorry, the, the, that's not, not in blue. The eGFR is, is shown there. There's the first two in each scatter uh, plot. And then the AGFR is the actual GFR uh, measured by IOHexol clearance. So what you can see is that the first two boxes, you'll see a reduction uh, in estimated GFR. That's occurring during a seven-day monotherapy period. Uh, then in red, the first two show normal GFR because that's, that's seven days after discontinuation of drugs, so the estimated GFR returns to baseline. But the, during that time, the actual GFR does not change. So it, it kind of confirms the hypothesis that this is really an artifact of the effect of the drug on and clearance. And, and um, I should just say that a very similar study was done with dolutegravir, which also has the same effect. And again, it, it suggested that dolutegravir exerts its effect on serum creatinine on that basis. Speaking of dolutegravir, the spring one study of dolutegravir versus efavirenz in naive patients, uh, we now have 48-week results. Um, again, you see that all of the dolutegravir arms give you faster viral load suppression than efavirenz. It's not that efavirenz is slow. It's that dolutegravir is fast, and you see that with, with pretty much all integrase inhibitors, that um, they, they do suppress viral load more rapidly. That's not thought to be clinically significant. It's thought to have to do with, the, with where in the, the life cycle the drug acts but it's uh, something that's, that's seen routinely in any integrase inhibitor study. But at the end of 48 weeks, you see that uh, the results look pretty much the same uh, for all of these different uh, doses and for efavirenz. Uh, there were no integrase resistance mutations in, uh, detected in patients failing dolutegravir, which is 
something uh, uh, very positive, obviously, because we certainly have seen integrase mutations with other integrase inhibitors. Um, grade 2 to 4 AEs were higher in efavirenz, as you might expect. Um, and again, dolutegravir was associated with a low-grade creatinine elevation, which I explained um, is not thought to be a true uh, renal toxicity. So this drug is moving forward, and um, including in some co-formulations, and you'll probably be hearing more about that from uh, Melanie Thompson. Uh, a new NNRTI lercivirine was compared with efavirenz in a group of ART-naive patients on tenofovir FTC. Overall, efficacy looked very similar. However, there was a lower efficacy at high viral loads with lercivirine. Interestingly, when they went back and did sort of a subgroup analysis, they found that that difference was accounted for entirely by patients who were in South African sites, and it didn't apply at any of the other sites. They don't have any explanation for why that would be the case. They're looking into it further, um, but uh, it's something to just be aware of. With the fabrins, there was more of the usual side effects that you would expect with the fabrins, namely CNS side effects and rash. But with lercivirine, there was more uh, nausea and headache, uh, which are certainly not side effects that people relish. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this in uh, more in, in later studies. Okay, ECHO and THRIVE, studies you're probably familiar with. These are the studies that led to the approval of rilpivirine as well as the rilpivirine-tenofovir-FTC co-formulation. So these were two almost identical uh, large phase three trials of rilpivirine versus efavirenz plus two nucleosides. And I'm not going to go through the original presentations from earlier conferences. I'll just show you what was presented in, uh, in Rome of the combined analysis of the, the two studies combined at 96 weeks. You can see 78% effectiveness versus 78% effectiveness, so really absolutely no difference. But their difference was in the details. There were more virologic failures with rilpivirine compared to efavirenz, 14% versus 7.6%, and this difference was really accounted for mostly by people who had baseline viral loads above 100,000. Um, NRTI mutations were more common with virologic failure on rilpivirine, and interestingly, they tended to be 184i as opposed to 184v. And cross-resistance to etrovirine was more common if you failed rilpivirine, and this was mostly due to a, a new 138K mutation, which previously hadn't been recognized as being an important etrovirine mutation, but turns out to be one. Discontinuations due to adverse events were more common with efavirenz, 8.5% versus 4%. So you can see that the, the non-inferiority of rilpivirine was uh, due to an, a balance between greater dropout with efavirenz and greater failure with rilpivirine. Just be aware that this drug, which of course is available now, must be taken with a meal, not just a snack, uh, that it should not be taken with proton pump inhibitors, and that you should be careful about using it uh, at a, a viral loads above 100,000. Uh, though, you know, uh, I think one of the things we've learned from the Echo and Thrive studies is that it looks like uh, rilpivirine may be a little less forgiving of non-adherence than efavirenz. So in a highly adherent patient who has a higher viral load, you may not, there may not be a problem. There's been interest in using once-a-day Maraviroc based on some of the early studies. And in the Motivate study, there had been a once-a-day arm. 
And they went back and did a post hoc analysis of 448 experienced patients who had received uh, Maraviroc once a day versus twice a day. They all had a boosted PI, and, uh, and then uh, some of them had placebo. And found in, in retrospect that once a day Maraviroc seemed to perform about as well as twice daily Maraviroc. Um, Maraviroc is also now being looked at as a component of a nuke sparing regimen, and I think. Although these data are from very small study, I think this is one of the more intriguing of the nuke sparing options. It's kind of interesting that after all this time, we really do not have a well-studied, uh, uh, acceptable nuke sparing regimen that um, that we're completely comfortable using. You would think that that by now we would have we would have had a lot of those regimens, and yet there's always some little flaw, either in terms of efficacy or toxicity, that keeps us from from uh, jumping on that bandwagon. This one is interesting. Um, Moravirac with boosted atazanavir versus tenofovir FTC with boosted atazanavir. A small study, but it, the results look fairly comparable. Similar CD4 increases in the, in the arms. No resistance mutations that emerged. Um, no evidence of tropism changes. Uh, pretty similar adverse events. One thing you need to um, be aware of and that you actually might predict if you think about it, is that hyperbilirubinemia and jaundice were more common with boosted atazanavir maraviroc. The reason, of course, is that without the tenofovir to lower atazanavir levels, you get higher atazanavir levels, and therefore you get more jaundice. So this is an issue that's specific to the atazanavir maraviroc combination, but probably wouldn't apply to some other protease inhibitor plus maraviroc. So they're going forward with further studies using maraviroc as uh, as a part of a nuke-sparing regimen, of course, you do have to do tropism testing before you put somebody on a regimen like this, and all of these studies uh, do baseline tropism. There was one study presented in Rome of uh, uh, short-course antiretroviral therapy in primary infection or recent infection, the SPARTEC study. So they identified 372 patients who had been diagnosed or been infected, excuse me, within six months, and they were randomized to either get 12 weeks of, of ART or 48 weeks of ART, which was then stopped, or just to get no ART until they needed it based on current guidelines. What they found, interestingly, was that the, the group that got 48 weeks did have a delayed time to the endpoint of either a CD4 of less than 350 or needing ART, but that difference was basically just the, diff the amount of time that they spent. So in other words, it didn't, all it did was delay things. It just pushed the clock back. Uh, but they pushed the clock back by, the, by about the amount of time that you were on treatment. So you, you get it now, you get it later. So that didn't seem to be an earth-shattering benefit. On the other hand, there did seem to be more of a benefit in people who <clears throat> had started very early, within 12 weeks of zero conversion. In, in those patients, there seemed to be a better viral load set point after they interrupted um, uh, therapy, and uh, their CD4 count seemed to be higher over the long term. So it's kind of a, you know, these studies were, many of them were planned a long time ago, back when there was sort of a vogue for short course therapy. I think now many people who start somebody at it very early on ART who's doing well at the end of 48 weeks is going to not be inclined to want to stop it. Uh, but at least this suggests that there may be some benefit, especially if you start people very early. Um, and the question of whether to actually stop at that point is, is the more controversial question. 
Okay, on to investigational agents from ICAC. Um, and again, you're going to hear more about investigational agents from Melanie Thompson. But uh, I do want to talk about Ibalizumab. Um, and I learned that that is the correct pronunciation. I practiced it over and over. Um, Ibalizumab, as you might guess, because it ends in MAB, is a monoclonal antibody, humanized monoclonal antibody to an epitope of CD4, and, it's an, and it blocks viral entry. So it blocks at one of the very early stages of entry, <coughs> long before you get to the, the co-receptor attachment or fusion. And um, although that... That, that stage in the viral life cycle has sort of been staring us in the face for many, many years. This is one of the first uh, agents we have in clinical trials that actually gets to that early step. So uh, there's a, uh, a study that was um, reported, looked at two different doses of ibalizumab. One was 800 milligrams given by IV infusion every two weeks, and then the other was 2,000 milligrams given every month in combination with the background regimen, and they... Uh, had pretty good results of 44% under 50 at week 24, 28% at the higher dose, or excuse me, at the monthly dose, with no discontinuations due to study drug. Um, so we'll see what happens. Um, the, uh, the need for infusion could be a plus or a minus. The minuses are pretty obvious. The pluses are that this could be delivered intermittently, so that uh, if we had other drugs in combination that could be given intermittently, it could be given to people um, in institutional settings or people who have trouble with adherence. Um, and um, uh, there may be also uh, prevention uh, uh, aspects to this that uh, could be looked at and probably are being looked at. There are a number of switch studies at both meetings. Um, the first is SWIFT. This is a study of patients who switched from tenofovir FTC to abacavir 3TC. They were on abacavir 3TC with protease inhibitors with suppression of viral load for at least three months and were randomized to switch to tenofovir or not. Um, interestingly, more patients in the, in the abacavir 3TC arm, the ones who stayed on their original therapy, experienced virologic failure. Now, the, it's, there's a little tricky thing here. They define virologic failure as a confirmed viral load above 200 or the last viral load on study above 200, which means that if somebody had one viral load above 200 and it was the end of the study, that counted as failure, even though their next viral load might have been undetectable. Um, but still, it was 11 failures by that definition versus three failures in those who stayed. And you can see the uh, results on the right. And then they looked at uh, both kidney function and lipids, saw real no, no real difference in uh, terms of kidney function. Um, well, a little bit of a difference. Um, apologize. The, uh, there was a, a, a decrease in Cockroft-Galt uh, by the end of 48 weeks. It was uh, a, a decrease by 8 versus uh, 4.5. Um, not surprising, but it looks like there's fairly stable kidney function if, at that point. And then, as you would expect, we've, we've known for a long time that tenofovir has lipid-lowering properties, and so it's not surprising that with the switch you would see a reduction in things like total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and triglycerides, which is what was observed. Now, this slide is actually not a switch study. It got into the wrong section by mistake, but it's okay because it sort of helps to introduce the next switch study. This is SENSE. This is the first study I'm aware of where etrovirine was used in treatment-naive patients. 
So it was etrovirine versus efavirenz in naive patients. Now, it's a, it's a small study. They're not, the company is not pursuing uh, approval of this drug for treatment-naive patients, so this is just sort of a, a, little, a little study. But, you know, it makes the point that, um, that etrovirine was, was a, appeared to be effective in, in this group, that it was better tolerated because of the, the lack of neuropsychiatric side effects, and um, they found that, interestingly, they did a resistance analysis where they found that baseline resistance mutations didn't seem to matter in either group, which is odd because it included NNRTI mutations, and that kind of flies in the face of what we've uh, learned from many other studies. So I, I'm not sure if I would make uh, too much out of that, but it was interesting that people did well regardless of these mutations. Now, and back to the switch studies, there was a a uh, study of ETRA-switch, which was a switch from boosted PIs to etrovirine, given once a day. And etrovirine is a drug that's approved for twice-daily dosing, but it has a long half-life that justifies once-daily dosing. So this was a prospective study in 46 patients, um, randomized to either stay on their PI or switch to etrovirine, maintaining their other drugs. Again, a small study, uh, but 100% of them maintained virologic suppression with the switch. Um, and uh, you can see the effect on, on uh, lipids. Uh, there was a beneficial effect on lipids uh, with that switch. So not something we're recommending that people do, but uh, it gives us a little bit of data on the use of etrovirine in, in patients who are, uh, weren't the original types of patients studied for that drug. Uh, and then I think a relatively important study, although a small one that was presented at ICAC, was a small single-arm study of 50 patients who were suppressed on tenofovir FTC efavirenz for at least three months and wanted to switch to the new co-formulation of tenofovir FTC ropivirine. And one of the concerns about that is that we know that efavirenz induces the metabolism of ropivirine and that, that that induction effect can take several weeks where you have low ropivirine levels. So people have been concerned about a direct one-to-one -one switch that you would get sub-therapeutic uh, ropivirine levels. And yet in this study, 100% of patients maintained undetectable viral loads at week 12. And the thought uh, for why that happens is sort of shown on the, uh, the PK graph is that um, while your ropivirine levels are being suppressed by induction, your efavirenz levels are high, keeping your viral load suppressed. As your efavirenz levels come down, then the induction decreases and your ropivirine levels go up. So no matter how you metabolize efavirenz, whether you're a slow metabolizer or a fast one, you've always got some drug there suppressing viral load. At least that's the idea. The concern here is that these are all people who were suppressed. And I would be very hesitant to extrapolate these data to somebody who's just started efavirenz, is experiencing side effects, and still has detectable virus, and you want to make a switch. I don't think we can say that that's safe based on what we saw in this study uh, for people who are, have been suppressed for a long time. So for those people, I would probably do some kind of an intermediate switch uh, before going directly to the new combination. Uh, and we'll close with complications. Um, there was a, a study looking at cumulative use of tenofovir or PIs and the risk of osteoporotic fractures. As you probably know, tenofovir has been shown to be associated with greater loss of bone density than other drugs. Um, and, but there hasn't really been any link between tenofovir and clinical manifestations of low bone density, namely fractures. So this is one of the first studies that makes that link. It was a retrospective analysis uh, from uh, male veterans 
uh, looking at osteoporotic fractures by ICD-9 codes, and they found that two things were associated in terms of drug use, cumulative use of tenofovir or a boosted PI. Um, and, in fact, the cumulative use of the boosted PI was entirely accounted for by lopinavir, ritonavir. There was no higher risk with cumulative use of abacavir, thymidine analogs, or non-nukes. Um, and uh, just be aware, of course, this is a retrospective study. They don't have bone mineral density data, so you can't go back and try to make the correlation that this was due to, to reduction in bone mineral density. Uh, they don't know that these fractures were osteoporotic. Um, so a lot of limitations, but it is sort of the first suggestion that, that the, the difference that we see in bone density may have some clinical significance. Then um, there's been a lot of debate about whether we should be considering the neuropenetration of drugs when choosing them. That, that if, we're, if we're choosing antiretrovirals without any thought for how well they penetrate the CNS, we could be leaving the brain alone and uh, pay the consequences later in terms of neuropsychological or cognitive uh, deficits. And there's a lot of debate uh, among this between uh, HIV people and neurologists. Uh, but this study from Canada suggests that we don't need to worry. Um, this was a study where they looked at the uh, CNS penetration score of regimens as uh, defined by this uh, CPE 2010 score, where you get a different uh, number of points for each drug. You add them up, and that's the score for your regimen. And then they looked at neuropsychological impairments uh, defined by a number of different uh, measures used in neuropsych testing. And as you can see, they found that the score of the regimen had really no, no bearing at all on how people did in neurocognitive uh, testing. And there had been another study in the ACTG previously that actually showed that people with higher penetrating drug regimens did worse on neuropsychological testing. So it's really a field with a great deal of controversy right now, um, uh, and it's a, a subject of very considerable debate, and there are a, a lot of trials going on trying to answer this question. Um, <clears throat> not, you won't be surprised about uh, this one. This is the Aquitaine cohort from, from France. Um, looking at tenofovir use alone or with a PI uh, and its association with chronic kidney disease. Um, they were following uh, over 2,500 patients with baseline GFRs above 60, and they found 86 cases of incident chronic kidney disease during the follow-up period. Tenofovir use was clearly a risk factor for kidney disease, and, and it was a greatest risk factor if it was combined with protease inhibitors. This has been seen now in many studies we assume that it's due to the fact that, that protease inhibitors increase tenofovir levels, though we don't know for a fact that that's the, the, the explanation. But certainly in observational cohort studies, we've seen uh, more to kidney toxicity when, the, when tenofovir is used with PIs, though that hasn't really shown up in a number of clinical trials where tenofovir is given with PIs. And of course, some of the other variables that were associated with uh, chronic kidney disease in this study included some of the ones you would expect, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, pre-existing renal dysfunction, and advanced uh, HIV disease. So I want to close by thanking um, mainly clinical care options that uh, was responsible for a lot of these slides, um, and the authors for the IAS slide set were Eric Dar and myself, and the authors for the ICAC slide set were David Hardy and, and Kathleen Squires, and uh, thank you very much for your attention. Excellent. Okay, so we're going to take questions for Joel. Joel, that was really...
Terrific. Thank you. Um, so people can either write your questions down and hold up the cards, or we have a couple of floor mics. Um, and I'll start off. Joel, can you name a Broadway musical that was set in Baltimore for us? Oh, Tripp, you get me on this every time. And he, he comes to Baltimore, and he, he, has a, he makes this an audience question, and most people get it wrong. And I've heard him do it, what, three or four times? And I can't remember. All right. Audience, hairspray would be obvious. But, okay. Uh, yeah. How could I have forgotten? Damn Yankees was sent in Baltimore. That's the one I Okay. Thought. Remember this. So you learned something today here at IASUSA. Okay, at the mic. In terms of fractures and tenofovir, uh, two things they specifically control for vitamin D levels is vitamin D deficiency is very common in HIV. And specifically, has anybody ever studied whether tenofovir affects vitamin D levels? Uh, the first answer is no, they did not. This was an observational study, and, of course, they're looking back at data before anyone ever thought that you should be ordering vitamin D levels. So they did not have that data collected systematically. Um, the only drug I'm aware of that has been thought of as, 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 to um, reduce vitamin D levels is efavirenz, and there are a number of studies suggesting that efavirenz can do that. The mechanism uh, in, by which tenofovir affects bone density is not thought to be vitamin D related. Great. Mike? Um, tenofovir is such a great drug that, you know, we use a lot of it. In that last study on the effect of, of renal function, it, was there any effort to sort out those people with diabetes or pre-existing hypertension from others so that we would have some guidelines as to where it might be safe to use tenofovir and where we should not? Well, they adjusted for those things, and they found that those were also risk factors. So, of course, the more risk factors you have, the more that is to happen. On the other hand, there have been analyses of some treatment-naive trials, such as the Gilead 903 and 934, where they specifically looked at people who had either hypertension, diabetes, uh, or baseline GFR that was in the lowest quartile, and looked at them over time and didn't really find any difference with the, between those and the rest of the group. Now, those were, remember, those are treatment-naive patients who are on efavirenz-based regimens. Um, the risk does appear to go up a little bit when you're combining tenofovir with a protease inhibitor. Joel, um, people were interested in the switch from rilpivirine to a favarin study. So the two, other way around. Uh, sorry, a favarin to rilpivirine. So two questions. One is, what's the optimal time to wait after a favarin has suppressed the viral load? And the second scenario is, would you worry in people who had greater than 100,000 copies HIV RNA before they went on the efavirenz regimen to switch to rilpivirine? Great question. So we don't know what the optimal time to wait. In this study, they used three months of viral suppression, and that seems like as good as any to, for, to me. Um, uh, I think if somebody had just become suppressed, I'd be inclined to either wait, or if they didn't want to wait, I would be inclined to, to use something as a bridge, you know, for about a month. Um, in terms of whether the baseline viral load matters when you switch, that is a really great question that I don't think has been answered. We all the time, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, I don't think we should use this drug in this person whose viral load is above 100,000. We have data to back that up. But what about the person who's been suppressed for five years and had a viral load above 100,000 five years ago? Does it matter then? You know, some people say, well, of course it must matter. Other people say, oh, it couldn't possibly matter. I just don't think we have any data to know whether, whether the baseline viral load matters uh, at all. Would you do it yourself? Um, I think in the case of rilpivirine, I think that the, the greater failure at high viral loads 
is mediated by non-adherence. So if I had a very adherent patient with a high viral load, I would be willing to make that switch. But I think efavirenz is a more forgiving drug of non-adherence than rilpivirine. And so although people can miss a dose of efavirenz here and there, that may not be as true for rilpivirine. So it would, to me, it would depend a lot on that. Going to the second mic. Um, this is a follow-up to the previous question about uh, tenofovir. Um, we have a I, I think this was brought out by your, the information you had on Cobisystat regarding GFR and our use of creatinine clearances are a guide for uh, dosing drugs. Uh, and I, I certainly, I have a lot of obese patients. I have a lot, see a very poor concordance between MDRD and Cockroft-Galt. And uh, so do you see anything uh, coming up as a better standard for us for uh, measuring GFR? Well, that's a good question. Um, as you know, Cockroft-Galt is the one that the nomograms are based on for dosing. It's the one that's been validated in HIV-positive patients. MDRD is the one that, re that nephrologists like better, but it has not been studied in HIV-positive patients, and the, the dosing nomograms aren't based on that. Um, I generally, f I always check them both, and they always seem like they sort of agree for my patients. But um, there, there is another uh, a system out there, and I, I'm blanking on the name. Maybe Trip knows that the nephrologists are sort of moving to. Um, they always try to change the game a little bit. Do you know? You know that one? Yeah. What is it? No, that's a direct measurement. This is another equation that you use um, based on serum creatinine. Um, uh, so I, I can't remember what that is. Sure. But no, nobody's really recommending that it be used widely for HIV-positive patients at this point. Do we have a nephrologist in the house? Nope. Okay. Um, Joel, is etravirine a once-a-day drug? Um, no and yes. So no, according to the FDA, etravirine is dosed twice a day. But the reason that it was studied for twice daily dosing was because at the time the, the size of the investigational pills or the number of pills required was huge. If you had taken it once a day, it would have been an entire meal of pills. So uh, they were kind of forced to study it that way. The, the half-life of etrovirine is very long and certainly justifies once daily dosing. Um, for my own patients, I do sometimes say, you know, and this is, of course, off-label, that um, uh, drop two pills in a glass of water and use that water to uh, drink your other pills, and then you've got yourself a, uh, I, I call that zero pills, right? So if you're taking that <laughs> with uh, Tanaf or FTC, that's a one pill once a day regimen. Stretching things a little bit, but, um, <laughs> but a lot of people don't like the way the, the chalky tablets start to dissolve in their mouth before they get to the back of the throat, so they prefer the drinking of it. So do you feel comfortable today if people are moving towards a once-a-day regimen, switching the etrovirine to once-a-day? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, another question about renal disease and tenofovir. Is the renal disease induced by tenofovir reversible if you take tenofovir away? It's clearly reversible, uh, though there are some studies that show that it's not 100% reversible, especially if you let it go very far. Um, and, and the other thing with, with tenofovir nephrotoxicity is you have to distinguish between the kind that's obviously tenofovir, the Fanconi syndrome with the low phosphate and the high fractional excretion of phosphate and the glucose in the urine. When you see that, that is tenofovir toxicity. You have to distinguish that from the glomerular toxicity where somebody's creatinine is creeping up but their urine looks okay. 
And, you know, you don't know, is that tenofovir, is it their blood pressure, is it their ibuprofen, is it their diabetes? You, you often stop tenofovir just in case or to avoid further injury, but you don't necessarily know that that's tenofovir nephrotoxicity. So the degree of reversibility of that entity is very much dependent on what the other causes of it are, what the other contributors, uh, contributors are. But it's very easy to look at people who have true Fanconi's or, or proximal renal tubular dysfunction and see reversibility when you stop, but you don't want to wait till they have osteomalacia to try reversing that. Joel, when will the quad pill be available? Um, the quad pill, there's actually a number of quad pills coming out, but the one that will come out first will be uh, the tenofovir, FTC, L-vitegavir, and covacistat. Um, and um, I don't know, I'm guessing late 2012, early 2013, do you know? So we just saw two press releases from the phase three studies. I think Melanie's Melanie going to review that, that later. Yeah. But that would be the data they'd probably submit to the FDA. Yeah. Question at the mic. Yeah, not to be, uh, beat a dead horse, but you know, a lot of us use uh, lisinopril or another ACE to improve kidney function, especially if they're on, uh, you know, those that are on tenofovir. You know, and you get a, a rise in your creatinine when you do that, which is beneficial. You look for that. And how about teasing that out with tenofovir use and not getting excited over it? Can you comment on that? Well, I, I, I mean, certainly we use uh, ACE inhibitors in patients with uh, diabetes or proteinuria to try to protect the kidney against, uh, against proteinuria. I haven't heard of any data suggesting that it would be beneficial in combination with tenofovir specifically to prevent tenofovir nephrotoxicity. Um, there will always be patients who are on both drugs for other reasons, but I, I don't know of any data saying that, that you can use an ACE inhibitor to mitigate the, the tenofovir uh, toxicity. Okay, Joel, thanks for getting this off to a great start.